1958, an engineer at Texas Instruments created the first microchip. That invention became the basis for modern technology and the explosion of new businesses. 2012, scientists discovered that CRISPR-Cas9 proteins could be used for detecting and editing genomes. It is considered one of the most significant discoveries in the history of biology. With the invention of CRISPR, we suddenly have the tools to find and manipulate biology in a simple-to-use, inexpensive way. The next 40 years, like the last 60 years of progress with the microchip, will see rapid biological innovation. It will touch everything. Food, diagnostics, ocean sciences, therapeutics, energy, pets, how we landscape our yards, everything. Biology is the new frontier. At NFX, we've been investing in this space. And in this episode of the NFX podcast, we talk to Trevor Martin, the CEO and co-founder of Mammoth Biosciences, an NFX company that is now the largest repository of CRISPR IP in the world. They are developing the Google of biology, where they will help anyone find what they are looking for in the genome. They are also working on a rapid COVID-19 test that uses CRISPR technology. Today, we will talk about the cutting edge of what's happening and why the future will be defined by biology. Let's jump in. So this is James Courier with NFX, and today we've got Trevor Martin, the CEO of Mammoth Biosciences. Trevor, great to have you on here, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on. You bet. So you're the co-founder and the CEO of Mammoth Biosciences, and your co-founders are Janice Chen and Lucas Harrington and Jennifer Dudna, the inventor of CRISPR. Uh, along with her staff there over at her lab at Berkeley. And your startup uses CRISPR gene editing technology for therapeutics and for diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And since February, you've been working to create a rapid COVID test. And we'll get into that. This COVID test is currently pending FDA emergency approval. And Mammoth recently announced a partnership on the test with the pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline, right? This is a, a company that that once it works, once it can be manufactured at scale, these are the guys to be able to do it. And look, I met you through Omni Drury of TechBio uh, back in 2007. And I had a chance to fund your pre-seed round in June of 2017, weeks before you graduated uh, with your PhD in genetics at Stanford. So then we led the seed round that fall, and then we then effects of participants in all the rounds subsequently. And at the time in June, when we funded you, it was your first job out of academia. And prior to Stanford, you went to Princeton, my alma mater, which is great to see. And you grew up in rural Georgia and you're now 31. I got it all right? Yeah, that's my resume for sure. Thanks for taking a break from what you've been uh, working on to talk with us. We know you're busy. And uh, I think it's uh, not an overstatement to say what you guys are working on is actually very important. So uh, thank you for the time. So let's uh, let's give some basic context about the basics of Mammoth. What is CRISPR in simple terms and how does it work? For those that have heard about CRISPR, they've probably heard about it in the context of, uh, like you mentioned, gene editing. Uh, there's been a lot of kind of newspaper articles around engineering the human race, um, editing humanity. And these aren't incorrect uh, kind of descriptions of CRISPR. It is an amazing gene editing tool, and that's kind of where it's really come onto the stage originally. But I think at Mammoth, what we see is that that explanation is a bit incomplete. Uh, so we see really CRISPR more broadly as a way of kind of having a search engine for biology and a way of programmatically interacting with wet, messy, previously thought to be in many ways intractable biology in the same way that we can program a computer. And once you start thinking about CRISPR in that way, it really kind of opens up all the possibilities. So, for example, using it as a diagnostic tool, uh, having it go into some sort of very complex sample, and if and only if it successfully finds a certain target that you've kind of programmed into it, uh, then it will read that out. You know, there's there's Cas9, there's Cas12, 13, 14. You guys are really focused on 
12, 13, and 14. And these are basically types of proteins that allow, allow you to go in and sense what's in there to read out what DNA or RNA is existing in the cells and then report back or go in and snip and cut it and, and make edits to it. Is that right? Yeah. So more generally, uh, we're really kind of focused on the next generation of CRISPR. So whether that's proteins in the 12, 13, or this brand new uh, 14 family uh, that we've developed and characterized, uh, or if that's something we haven't even uh, discovered yet or that doesn't fit into any given classification system. And the kind of most famous CRISPR protein out there is Cas9, and that's the one that most people have heard of. And I think what's interesting is that even from the genesis of Mammoth, we couldn't have used Cas9 to build the types of diagnostic systems that we're building because it doesn't have the special properties that we use. But part of our thesis is that new proteins in this kind of CRISPR universe enable new functionalities. Uh, so it's not just having something new for the sake of it being new. It's really something new allows you to unlock something that wasn't possible before, like these kind of CRISPR-based diagnostic systems. In, in a way, it's almost like uh, the discovery of a microchip where you have completely new capabilities that we didn't have before. How is it different from the biology that came before? I mean, maybe maybe try to play out some of that that analogy with, you know, what life was like before we had a microchip and and then afterwards, and then what came, of course, as a result of having a microchip, the internet and cell phones and everything. Yeah, so it's interesting because actually, even before Cas9, there's been ways of interacting with DNA and RNA to cut it and edit it. Um, for example, there's things like uh, talons. But one of the major breakthroughs, even with Cas9, which is an amazing tool itself, uh, was the kind of programmability of that. Before, it was something that took a lot of time, a lot of effort, you know, maybe an entire PhD to edit a single locusts in a genome, for example. And when Cas9 came along, one of the huge transformations there, and you often hear about this in terms of uh, kind of talking about the democratization of access to these types of tools, is that you don't need to have a lab and like a core facility and all these different people that are super uh, well-trained to create like a talent system for this one locus that it's going to be kind of a whole ordeal to get working. Instead, you can really quickly and rapidly and iteratively, most important, go after uh, editing even many places in the genome through things like genomic screens because of a key part of this kind of CRISPR technology, which was present in the first Cas9 version as well, which is the programmability. Uh, and that programmability comes from the fact that the CRISPR-Cas system is a protein fundamentally, so it's something you could hold in your hand or you could hold a you know, million of them in your hands. And and the way you program it is by giving a thing called a guide RNA. And we're very, very good at synthesizing and creating these guide RNAs. Um, and these guide RNAs are, you can kind of think of them literally as uh, letters, like ATCG. Uh, and you can think of the CRISPR protein as kind of a Google where you type in a search string, and that search string is your guide RNA, and then it'll go find that. And once it finds it, you can do many things with it. You can cut it, so you edit, you can report out that it found it, you can chew through it, destroy it, uh, you can turn something on, turn something off, etc. Um, so that was kind of the first big breakthrough. Uh, what we're excited about at Mammoth is then taking that to the next level. So uh, even though Cas9 is an amazing tool, there's still many limitations. So one example limitation would be that you can't actually send it anywhere. There's actually kind of limitations on where it can go. So it can only go to these zip codes, but not these other zip codes. And with some of the proteins we've discovered, uh, for example, from the Cas14 uh, family that we've now developed into these really awesome tools, uh, you can actually target uh, anywhere in the genome for diagnostics, which is a huge uh, kind of sea change in what's possible, especially if you're looking after specific genomic targets. You can't just rely on happening to have uh, the right sequence in the area that allows you to target it. So to give us all a sense of how quickly this is happening, Cas9 was 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 invented when? Like anything in uh, science, obviously it's a long journey, but really came on the scene in 2012. 2012, uh, and then and then and then Cas13 was 2017. 
Cast 14 was 2018. I mean, it's all happening right now, right? It's it's kind of interesting that, that you know, these technological innovations have taken place in biology that now give us these new tools, and they simply didn't exist three, four years ago. Yeah, and I think it's definitely accelerating as well. Like the whole field of synthetic biology, generally, and this idea of interacting with biology in this kind of programmatic way is definitely, I think, capturing the imagination and also taking off. And there's this kind of common phrase, obviously, in the Valley around kind of uh, software eating the world. And I think definitely the message uh, for the next decade, in my opinion, is that that was just kind of the appetizer. And that biology is really kind of the main course here in terms of what can fundamentally transform the way we interact with the world. And of course, there'll be many awesome products built in that space. Right. And it's probably not just in the next decade, but it's probably the next 30, 40 years. Well, yeah, but beginning in the next 10 years, and yeah. we'll see where it goes from yeah, there. Yeah, because these are really the first tools of, of the microchip, if you will, for, for what's to come next. And the programmability and the iteration that you can do with this CRISPR tool is is what's new. And it's also what we were able to do in software, you know, starting in the 70s and 80s, once the substrate of the computational system was strong enough, then we could... Um, start to iterate. And that's really where we saw a lot of explosive opportunity. And that's what we're getting with CRISPR. It's amazing. So you're doing both therapeutics and diagnostics using CRISPR at Mammoth. And then what's the business model? Just give people a sense. How does how do you guys make money? Yeah. So I think fundamentally we view uh, kind of CRISPR as this platform for searching through biology, finding something, and then uh, doing uh, what you want to do with that kind of sequence once you find it. So once you start thinking about CRISPR in that framework, it becomes like very natural actually to think about both, okay, we find something and we want to report out that we found it. We find something, we want to uh, edit it in many different ways, or even things we you know can do beyond that, turning something on, turning it off, et cetera. And in terms of uh, the business model there, I think it's going to, of course, be different depending on the exact application you're going after. So diagnostics, for example, has uh, very different business models generally than uh, kind of therapeutics and editing. Uh, but fundamentally at Mammoth, uh, one of the ways that we can scale the company is especially early on working with really trusted partners uh, very deeply uh, and in close collaboration to really kind of enter these markets in the strongest way possible. So partners like? Yeah, so I think the recent uh, news around GSK is a good example of this where, uh, you know, we're a young startup with a really exciting technology and a ton of expertise around how to actually build that into a product that can help well, millions or actually in this case, truly billions of people. And we have a ton of expertise around how to really create that product and make it the best thing it can be. And then we can partner with a company like uh, GSK, for example, that has incredible expertise in kind of global distribution, manufacturing things at scale, uh, bringing things through many different regulatory processes. And it's kind of one of these things where it's the best of both worlds in terms of them making a huge bet on innovation in the space and us making a huge bet on a partner that believes in uh, innovation and bringing exciting new technologies to the market. So that's an example where I think you can kind of have the best of both worlds in some sense. And so GSK is almost like building an app on top of a platform. So if you said you had Microsoft OS and you built WordPerfect on it, you built Excel on it, you built you built various apps on top of the Microsoft OS, you could be saying the same thing for Mammoth Biosciences, where GSK is going to help you build the COVID diagnostic, or you're going to build it and then they're going to distribute it. But that would be an app that would then live on top of the platform of Mammoth Bioscience. And and then those people make money and then they pay you a portion of the money that they make because they pay you rights to use the platform, get the data, get the thing developed. 
right? Working with partners is a good way to kind of scale across different verticals. And then of course, you know, long-term as you further develop these technologies and gain expertise in building them to market, you can also imagine going directly in certain markets yourself. So it's kind of an interesting strategy where you can really grow very quickly and very effectively um, while still maintaining uh, long-term value where, you know, as you go after different applications, you can of course go directly if that's the choice that you want to make. Got it. And you guys have also announced the therapeutics partnership as well. So now there's a, a company that wants to build basically an app, if you will, or a, a particular instance of using CRISPR on the therapeutic side and the editing side. Yeah. So on the editing side, we've also announced a partnership with uh, Horizon Discovery um, where they're using it for some uh, exciting applications there on the editing side. And where where's the company based, Trevor, just to, so everybody knows? And how many people are there? We're in South San Francisco, uh, which is kind of the I think the slogan of there is the birthplace of biotech. Um, okay. So it's a really exciting place to be in general because uh, there's definitely a lot of kind of large companies. Uh, Genentech is one of the main companies there, of course, uh, but then tons and tons of startups as well. So it's a very interesting ecosystem. Uh, and actually, we're on the campus of one of our investors as well, which is Verily, which is uh, one of the life science arms of Alphabet or Google, I guess, as most people know it still. And that's also a really interesting kind of micro ecosystem where we're also on the campus of you know, a much larger company, but many kind of very fast growing startups are there as well. And it's a really just kind of great environment to be in. Got it. And, you know, I've, I've heard uh, recently that hundreds, through over 300 uh, biotech startups, so synthetic biology, computational biology companies have moved to the Bay Area over the last 24 months from all over the world to be in the growing ecosystem here in the Bay Area. And I think that uh, South San Francisco is really the epicenter of it. And so you're running this company and January 2020 comes. What happened? I mean, we use the word pivot a lot when we talk about changes companies need to make to their business model when responding to, say, a global pandemic. But you don't use that word when you describe what happened to you earlier this year um, when you went from looking at infectious diseases to going after this new virus. Take us back to that moment when you realized that COVID was something that required all of your attention. And what did you do? So that's a great question. And I think from the very beginning of the company, we've been interested in leveraging CRISPR-based diagnostics for infectious disease. And so that's why it was a very natural kind of process for us to really kind of start developing a test for COVID-19 very quickly. And very early on, uh, one of the things that was incredibly helpful is the network that we've built up around the company. So for example, one of our scientific advisory board members, Dr. Charles Chu, is a leading professor over at UCSF here in San Francisco. He is a worldwide expert in infectious disease. And so we had a conversation with him very early on. And definitely, he was very supportive of us seeing about what CRISPR diagnostics could do in this type of situation. Because definitely, um, one of the advantages we see of the technology is that a test can be spun up very rapidly, for example. What do you mean very rapidly? So instead of taking uh, many months to develop a new test, really taking weeks to do so. Uh, and I think we really proved that out earlier this year when within weeks of kind of making this decision to uh, create a CRISPR-based diagnostic for COVID-19, we're able to post on our website a white paper actually describing how uh, anyone could run this test. So two weeks to to get uh, something going rather than three to four months. Right. And I think that's especially for a new technology like uh, CRISPR diagnostics, where you 
you're not kind of capitalizing on decades and decades of creating tests before. I think that's an especially powerful statement to be able to put out this type of white paper showing uh, how a CRISPR diagnostic could function. And then I think that was further validated when uh, shortly thereafter, we were able to publish this paper in Nature Biotechnology, where we actually had the largest and most rigorous set of real patient samples run on uh, COVID-19 CRISPR diagnostic, almost 100 samples, and showed that it had really great sensitivity and specificity. So 100 samples is considered a pretty good panel for something like this in such a short amount of time. And that was pretty exciting at the time. This was back in what, January, February, right? I don't know the exact date on the paper, but in general, I think I, we had probably around 84 samples, which is, yeah, just far above uh, kind of what's required for regulatory submissions. And you were able to get to those samples through UCSF? Uh, through our collaboration with Dr. Charles Chu, for example. Um, and that's where having a really strong network around the company of, uh, you know, amazing individuals who are experts in their fields is super critical, I think, for moving quickly and kind of developing these types of tests as well. You know, once you had done that, when did the team decide, okay, let's go all in on COVID-19 and, and solve this? Yeah, so I think from the kind of very beginnings of when we we're working on the white paper, it was definitely something where we knew that CRISPR diagnostics had the potential to actually make an impact here if we worked on it hard enough. You were looking at the virality of it. You were looking at its the sort of the death rates that were coming out of Wuhan, and you said, "Oh, this is a serious thing. This is worth this is worth our attention." I mean, because we didn't have lockdowns in the U.S. until what March sixteenth or something. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it definitely comes down to kind of a global perspective around. Definitely, you've seen you know things like uh, H1N1, and you know even in other parts of the world, things like Zika and Ebola. And I think one of the promises of CRISPR-based diagnostics is that it can create tests that are actually both effective for things that we can use it for in a non-pandemic situation in the developed world, um, but also can be something that's leveraged in the developing world and in like low resource settings where you can't have a huge amount of equipment and uh, people that are trained to run that specific type of equipment. So that's where I think also some of the impetus comes from in terms of moving very quickly. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball in terms of saying, okay, this is like how much of a pandemic is going to be or not. But I think even at that early stage, knowing that CRISPR diagnostics can have an impact. And bring us up to speed. Where are we with the COVID test? So tell us tell us about the test. How fast will it work? Where can you do it? And why, why is it a significant breakthrough versus what we already have? Yeah. So the way I view kind of diagnostics in general today is a bit of a tale of two cities. Uh, so on the one hand, you have molecular testing, and that's uh, things that people may have heard before, like PCR or sequencing. Um, these are technologies that can have incredibly high accuracy, but they require long turnaround times. Like maybe you need to mail in a sample because it can be weeks before you get a result. It uh, requires expensive equipment, you know, $100,000 machine, $10,000 machine requires trained personnel, people in lab coats kind of pipetting stuff back and forth. So that's the disadvantage. But the advantage is it's really the gold standard type uh, technologies. On the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, kind of rapid tests. Um, so these can be, uh, you may have heard of like antigen, antibody tests. These are things that can be in the format of like our pregnancy tests, um, but typically suffer from much lower sensitivity and specificity and often are not molecular. Uh, so they're not testing for the DNA and RNA. They're looking at proteins. And that's going to give you a kind of different part of the disease progression, for example, where typically those aren't going to be very effective in the early asymptomatic stages. We're looking at the nucleic acids can be. So the advantage here is, you know, very scalable, very accessible, very easy to use, where the disadvantage is often not molecular, are detecting nucleic acids, and then often lower sensitivity and specificity. 
And I think the promise of CRISPR-based diagnostics is what if you could actually kind of unify these two fields? And what if you could actually have molecular style results in this rapid style format? I think that's uh, fundamentally what's exciting. So what if, you know, within 20 minutes, you could get a result that has the same accuracy as what you would get going into a lab by taking a nasal swab or spit or similar sample and using something in the format of a pregnancy test to get that result. That would be transformative. And that's kind of been a bit of the ultimate aim of diagnostics as a field generally for a while. And that's where it's really exciting that technology breakthroughs like CRISPR can really enable us to get towards that type of product. And with this COVID test, you've proven that this approach works in the lab, but now you need to go through more development. When do you think that development will get to the point where this could be mass produced approximately? Yeah. So what's exciting is that we've shown that the fundamental kind of chemistry has amazing sensitivity and specificity, and it's very simple and it's something that could be put into this uh, really simple format. So now, of course, the next step is, okay, doing that. Um, And we've been working on that for a while, um, but of course, there's uh, still work to be done to achieve that goal. Uh, And our uh, goal right now is that by the end of the year, we would have an EUA submitted to the FDA around that. And an EUA is, for those listening? Uh, It's an emergency use authorization. So that would be starting uh, the regulatory process. Great. And so the regulatory process with the FDA might take months and months typically, but because it's an EUA, an emergency one, they would get back to you in several days or a week or two. It's kind of a constantly changing guidance, but definitely faster than the normal process would be the goal. And so the FDA is aware of what you guys are doing. They're eager for you to give them what you're trying to give them. And they're ready. They're in the, the ready position to get what you've got and, and, and approve it if it really, really works. And then let us uh, let us spread this around. Because theoretically, you could have this at home and then you could just take a picture of it with uh, your cell phone and send it to the you know Center for Disease Control or you know your state disease control. And you could actually watch a pandemic sort of move across the landscape uh, almost in real time uh, with this type of a tool. Is that is that part of the vision? Yeah, so definitely you'd want it connected to next steps, for example. So that could either be through a picture or maybe even more easily and scalably, it could just be Bluetooth that connects the result to your phone. So you don't kind of have too much interpretation going on. And then more generally, in terms of next steps, that could be telemedicine, telehealth. It could be anonymously sending results to an organization like the CDC. It could be many different kind of uh, parameters there, where the important thing is that it's uh, actionable. And obviously, in a pandemic, your COVID 19 status is very actionable, and I think many people would like to know. But also making sure that it's supported is a key feature of connecting it to uh, something like your phone so that you know, okay, let's say I have a positive result. What are the steps that I should actually take next? And you're not left kind of wondering and worrying. The next COVID, if you will, COVID-22 or COVID-25, with Mammoth around, it could all change, where as soon as it emerges in Wuhan, Mammoth grabs a bunch of samples, in a few weeks figures out you know, what the signature is. And then within just a few months has tens of millions, hundreds of millions of home diagnostics available, all tied into the internet so that we're ready if it actually jumps the ocean and starts coming to the US or Europe or wherever or vice versa. And that's that's a world we could be living in in the next two years, yeah? Well, I think, yeah, and actually you could do even better than that, actually, by because of the way the system works and because it's programmed by this guide RNA, you could even stockpile millions of tests, but without the guide RNA, so that within even just, you know, weeks, you could have millions of tests ready to be deployed without having to go through the full process of, you know, creating the entire uh, pregnancy test-like device. Instead, you can just add a single reagent, potentially, and that's even more powerful. Amazing. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Boy, could we have used that this last year, huh? That would have changed changed the whole thing. 
Yeah, the pandemic has really exposed, I think, a surprising gap in our diagnostic capabilities in some ways. I mean, I definitely personally think it's crazy that in 2020, we don't have this ability to very rapidly give an accurate molecular test um, at scale. And that's definitely a big part of what we're solving at Mammoth. So look, Trevor, let's let's talk about you for a little bit and, and start to get at some of the things that you've learned being a CEO. You're 31 years old. You're you're the CEO of, of this very important company. You guys have a, a library of, of um, you know, CRISPR IP that's the largest in the world. Just prior to this, you were a PhD student at Stanford. You know, you hadn't actually worked in industry before this. You're learning on the fly. I'd love to get at what it's like to transition from scientist to founder to entrepreneur. Um, so, so if we could, let's go back to the early days when we met. You're a PhD student in your final year. You're presenting your business idea at a startup showcase at Stanford, right? And you met Omri Drury, who is a former CEO of Genome Compiler and, and then became the head of BizDev and M&A at Twist after Twist acquired Genome Compiler. And then Omri introduces you to me, and, and you and I get to meet in my garage here in Palo Alto. You know, we talked about the bioplatform idea. We uh, changed the name of the company to Mammoth, which was more spellable than, than the original one. Um, you brought on three new co-founders, uh, including Jennifer Dudna, who co-discovered CRISPR. And that was a great period of, of, of change for you. What were some of the things that it was like to transition from this world of, of biologists, computational biology and, and academia into being a founder and, and then uh, raising capital? Yeah, so I think um, one area that actually a PhD and that type of training is actually very helpful, uh, interestingly enough, for a startup is uh, dealing with uncertainty. Um, so I think in a PhD, the whole point is that you're trying to go after things that no one's ever done before, and there's no textbook that you can follow to get there, or else you shouldn't probably be doing it. Um, so I think that's actually one area where uh, founders coming out of that environment and myself definitely can leverage that to our advantage in terms of like being more comfortable with like, okay, we don't know what the answer is. We don't know where this is headed. It could go many different directions. Uh, and frankly, being comfortable with failure. The first three years of your PhD, often people say that's kind of just where you learn how not to do things, for example. Uh, and in a startup as well, definitely a huge part of it, in my opinion, is being comfortable with uh, failing or coming close to failing and kind of persevering through that. So I think that's somewhere where actually maybe it's underappreciated how much uh, graduate school and PhD training uh, can actually be an advantage. Yeah, I think I think that uh, that's great news for all of us because uh, we need people like you coming out and building stuff, making stuff. And, you know, we need uh, folks who have this deep domain knowledge in computational biology to actually use that in a way that sort of uh, expands and touches hundreds of millions or billions of people. And you are doing just that. So I'm glad that you got that training. Are there ways of thinking that clash between thinking like a biologist and thinking like a founder? Did did you have to reinvent any frameworks that you think through? Yeah, no, I think definitely, obviously, there's you know a lot of differences. And I think a key one for me personally was as the company, I mean, well, even very quickly early on hiring our first employees, but especially as the company has grown, um, something graduate school doesn't prepare you for as much. And I think even for people staying on an academic path probably should prepare you better is uh, managing people actually. Um, because definitely, uh, you know, there's a big impetus towards collaborating and things like that in academia, although I don't think there's enough of that either. But there's definitely not any sort of like formal training or uh, really kind of extensive like mentorship process is around like, how do you manage a team? How do you uh, motivate people? How do you deal with someone that's feeling uh, less motivated? And I think that's an area where, especially as the startup grows, that becomes, you know, 90 plus percent of your job. Uh, and that's incredibly important. And I think there, one of the things 
I'm excited about personally is just getting the smartest people on earth and people that are way smarter than me to work on really interesting problems with me that I think are important. Um, so that part uh, came very easily to me in terms of that's just what's exciting and what I like to do. Um, but I think uh, more formal work around how do you make sure to manage effectively and things like that or somewhere where graduate school maybe doesn't preparing as well as it could. It's a great point. And, you know, I've noticed that uh, even at uh, even at your young age, you've managed to hire some of the best people in the world for building this type of a company and people who are older than you, wiser than you, have more experience than you. And how do you how do you relate to them? How do you see yourself and your role in the company to to quote unquote manage them or work with them, if you will? Kind of my number one goal in general is to get people that are better than me to help us on this journey because I think that's the only way you'll accomplish incredibly ambitious goals. And then just be the glue, be the glue that ties them together and inspire them with the vision. Right. And the key there is really um, if you're going to hire really awesome people, then there's no point in trying to just force kind of what you want them to do because otherwise you could hire people that aren't really awesome and smart and, you know, just tell them what to do. So I think they're. That makes it very easy for me to really always be thinking about how to empower people and how to make sure that people are put in the right situation where they can leverage their kind of superpowers rather than uh, putting people in a situation and saying, okay, this is what you should be doing. And I think in many ways, it's 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 interesting because it sounds like an easier thing to do. Like, okay, you just find really smart people and then you put them in the right situation. But I think that's actually in many cases way harder than just hiring someone and then trying to force what you think they should be doing on them. Right. What What do you do around culture? You know, this this is, a, what, 35 people. I mean, it, it could end up being hundreds and hundreds. I mean, we have Genentech as an example. I mean, this thing could be sort of infinitely sized. What are you, what are you doing right now in terms of building culture? Yeah. So in this type of model, um, culture is extremely important. Uh, so from very early in the company, we've written down cultural values, for example, but cultural, like writing them down only goes so far. It's definitely an important first step that I think many companies don't do. And I think that's definitely something you should do. Uh, but it's only step one of, you know, probably infinite steps, but, you know, at least you know, many steps. And I think the more important part that we're always self-evaluating on is do we actually bring these kind of cultural values that we've outlined and claim that are important to us into decision making? So when we're making tough decisions, do we actually reference them in those decisions and do they actually influence uh, what we end up doing? Um, so that's kind of how we view culture more broadly is, okay, you have values that you've thought about and that the company is aligned on these being important. Um, but then on self-reflection, when, you know, especially when times are tough, let's say, or when you're making a tough decision, is that a framework that you bring in for making the decision? And if not, maybe you need to adjust your values or maybe you need to start doing that. And and you guys, and you guys uh, have coaches, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so each of the management and the, and the founders have coaches to help them be even better at their job, which I think is great and is, a, is an opening and a, and a, a communication improvement. And I know several of you have done the, uh, the LIT program, the Leaders in Technology. That's a Carol Robin and Joe Greenstein uh, program for uh, up-and-coming leaders that uh, focuses on culture and communication and, you know, your own personal growth. Without, you know, one of the things we've said at NFX is there's no corporate growth without personal growth. Right. There's no um, there's no co- corporate victory without personal victory. So, um, you know, these are these are very far looking things. I mean, you guys are building a real foundation. I think you've you've said that to me in the past that the idea at this early stage, even with all the chaos of 
you know, the fundraising and the partnership with GSK and the moving of the offices and the hiring people as quickly as you can and the, the press coming out all the time about Mammoth. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of press uh, press mentions of, of Mammoth just in the last year alone. And with all that, you're still spending the time on the on the culture and the foundation and the communication because you can see pretty far into the future about how how uh, sizable this gets. And and uh, you've said to me in the past that, you know, culture is really the secret weapon. Culture is how you really scale these things. Um, so you don't have to actually direct every piece of it. And, you know, I think a lot of founders don't spend that time. And I think you guys are such an exemplar in, in doing that. So I wanted to commend you on that. Yeah, it can definitely, especially in the Bay Area, be expensive, um, many of these programs. But I think definitely long term, it's worth it. And even if you're not using the, you know, you don't have to use the super fancy, expensive programs. I think part of it as well comes down to, especially early on when you're looking at investors, hopefully being able to choose investors that you think could also help in these types of situations and have similarly aligned uh, kind of cultural focus can be a way of helping uh, kind of lay that foundation as well. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've often seen the difference on board members that were operators before they became board members, you know, when they were running their own companies, because there's a lot more EQ required to, to often get in and manage folks. And I think that finding people who support you in digging that deep foundation is critical for sure. So what other advice do you have for early stage founders in biotech? I mean, you've you've come pretty far with what you've done in just the last three years. I think it's becoming uh, more and more popular, actually, for graduate students and postdocs to found companies, which I think is super awesome. And I don't think it takes away from academia at all um, in terms of like, I think these are just different ways of trying to make a really awesome impact on the world. And I think that's one of the advantages of biotech as well uh, in the kind of corporate world is that um, it's this just really clear line towards uh, public good and aligning that with a profit incentive. And I think that's where some of the most iconic companies are built is when uh, those aren't in conflict. So I think that's really exciting for the field in general is that we'll probably have a lot of really awesome advances for human health as a result of this. In terms of kind of advice and things to watch out for, I think one thing definitely uh, that's a big difference that you have to be comfortable with, well, depending on which track you want to take exactly, but let's say you want to be CEO of a biotech startup, is you have to be comfortable stepping away um, from the details of the science. And I think that can be a key uh, stumbling block as a company grows is that if you aren't super okay with that, which is fine, right? There's no value judgment there at all. Um, in fact, you know, some people might say being closer to the science is like higher value, but it just means you need to be careful about what role you're actually playing in the company. So if you want to be CEO or like chief operating officer, or, you know, some other role that's not chief scientist, but even for chief scientists, let's say, really being able to understand that, hey, like I'm not going to be writing code necessarily as much as I was before, and I'm not going to be micromanaging every single science scientist on the team, I'm going to hire really awesome people that can do amazing science better than me, equal to me, you know, hopefully not worse than you would do. That would put you in a bit of a spiral in terms of hiring. But really having that mentality of empowering others, because in graduate school and even in a postdoc as well, often it can be an individual contributor type role. Even if you are managing some RAs, uh, really you're doing a ton of the work and that's super rewarding. And you need to be comfortable or at least understand that as part of the growth of the company, uh, that won't be your role going forward. And I think that's a really important kind of mental thing to at least consider at the beginning. Like, is that something you love? And is that what you want to do for the rest of your life is stay really close to the science and really be kind of in the weeds of it every single day coding? Or do you want to manage a team of really awesome scientists that are really in the weeds? And of course, you know, staying close to it and understanding it, but not being in that exact same individual contributor role. I think that's a really key. Yeah, the CEO role, you're, all the hard decisions come to you. If they were easy, someone else would have made them. So you're spending your day making the hard decisions. You're spending your day recruiting and managing, spending your day fundraising, 
talking to press. And I think that actually goes into the second uh, kind of key area um, that I've found has been important, which is uh, understanding regardless of what your role is, but definitely, of course, for the CEO, especially uh, what are the things that uniquely you can do and what are the things that other people uh, can do better than you or can do or you shouldn't be doing. Um, and I think they're uh, kind of constantly asking yourself that question can really make yourself way more high leverage. Uh, because I think one uh, mistake that can be made early on, and I'll fully admit this mistake myself, um, is that filling up your calendar can feel like a productivity uh, measure. Um, but it's actually, in many ways, it might be the worst measure. It's actually opposite. It's like it's like inversely correlated with productivity, maybe. Um, and definitely early on, especially once you've filled up your calendar a bunch and you have all these meetings all day where like, you're being productive and you're talking to people, uh, it can feel scary actually in some ways to like just clear your calendar and be like, no, like actually there's no meetings this day. And I just need to, from first principles, focus on what I as an individual can do to be high leverage and really make the company go from one to 10 X, not one to 1.01. And that's a big transition. <laughs> to put a point on that, I mean, when you first launched, you were approached by tens and tens of people around the industry trying to work with Mammoth and you took meetings with them and you pursued potential partnerships with them. And I remember after eight or nine months, you sort of realized these folks aren't the folks that are going to get it done for us. These people need us to help them with their careers and in their divisions uh, of their companies more than we need them. And they can't really help us get done what we need to get done. And you reoriented and your, and your calendar had been very full and you had felt very productive, but but choosing who to work with, particularly when you're building a platform like you guys are, and you're sticking applications on top of that platform, who you partner with is a critical decision. I mean, I think it's a very good point to, to, for founders to make a differentiation between busyness and productiveness. Yeah, it's an easy trap to fall into. Yeah. And what's been the most challenging part of your founder journey so far? What's been the thing that has been hardest? Is it emotionally hard or intellectually hard? Or No, I mean, it's definitely both emotionally and intellectually hard. Anyone that tells you otherwise is uh, extremely lucky or lying. <laughs> um, but I think in general, the hardest for me, I think because uh, this is one area where graduate school doesn't prepare you as well, is uh, making sure I'm an awesome coach uh, and kind of, well, advisor and coach, but in the more important sense, like coach and confidant and kind of leader for the company in terms of, you know, managing a huge and growing team. Uh, and that's thankfully something that's super exciting and incredibly interesting to me, but it's definitely somewhere where that's been kind of a hockey stick growth area because of, you know, this different background I'm coming from. Sure. And, and you have a big board, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a board observer on the board since the beginning and, and, you know, it gets bigger and bigger uh, every few months and those are all relationships and c communications and conversations that you need to have. Um, and that's a whole nother group. And then you've got all the business development relationships because they all want to talk to the CEO, right? And so you, you have to manage those relationships as well. So you have a huge constellation of both employees, partners, and board members, investors that you need to, uh, to manage from where you sit. And so that's been, that's, that's been a lot of energy and, and a lot of learning. And what's been your favorite part of the journey so far? Yeah. So my favorite part is, uh, definitely seeing us, uh, build product and the technology advancing and getting closer to launch. I think seeing something go from something that was, you know, in a paper in an academic lab and now is getting closer and closer to being a transformative product that could benefit billions of people is an incredibly rewarding and kind of exciting journey. And that's definitely um, super uh, inspiring, I think, for everyone in the company to see that uh, work over time. No, oh, and I think you guys are, are, are so lucky to have you know, been working on this this new discovery, this new invention of CRISPR. It's just a, it's a whole sea change in what's possible. And to be the stewards of that 
uh, into the world, I think is an incredibly great honor and, and a good responsibility for you guys to take on. I feel like you should be very excited. So, so Tara, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, CRISPR makes uh, editing biology so much easier, so much more iterative than it's been in the past. And, you know, it could be used for great good, uh, but it might be that someone might try to use this for great ill. Is there a way we need to think about how we protect ourselves from the great ill while allowing for the great good? Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, in many ways, the kind of meta conversation is similar to things like artificial intelligence and kind of other advanced technologies that could just fundamentally change how we interact with the world. Um, and there, speaking kind of personally, uh, I think it's a key conversation that has to include not just scientists and biotechnologists, but really society at large, because I think it is a more fundamental question about where do we as, you know, humanity or, you know, at least whatever political boundaries want to be in, in the United States or uh, in the UN or whatever level we want to talk about, uh, where do we want to go? Well, as as COVID has shown us, it's not just the U.S. I mean, you know, it's all these, all these sort of genetic things are sort of worldwide, right? Very quickly. Yeah, no, especially in biology, of course, uh, borders can be a little bit more meaningless in terms of uh, having any impact on what's actually going on. But I think uh, fundamentally, it's really first having the conversation. I'm not sure there's been like a very concerted effort to really have a worldwide conversation around like what are the things we think are appropriate for these powerful new tools and what are the things that we think are inappropriate. And people can sign on to that or not, but at least the lines are very clear and people know which side of the lines they are. On, um, and I think that's uh, there's been some initial steps towards that, um, but still mostly coming from scientific circles rather than political or uh, other circles. And I think it's a conversation that truly needs to involve everyone, not just you know scientists and patients, of course, but uh, politicians, religious leaders, um, other uh, business leaders. Um, you know, just everyone's lives will be affected by these technologies, so everyone needs to have a voice in terms of kind of making a stand on where we as a society should bring them. Uh, so my hope is that uh, as these technologies continue to advance, uh, of course, you know, that's something that's going to happen worldwide. So it needs to be a worldwide conversation. Uh, and we don't all have to agree on where those lines are, but at least there needs to be transparency around what lines we are drawing. Yeah. Well, I look forward to uh, hearing hopefully in the next year or two about someone pulling this conversation together because it's uh, going to become uh, more and more important uh, over the next year or two, particularly as mammoth advances in its ability to, to edit and to diagnose. And, you know, these, these technologies get more and more mature. It does feel as if um, uh, as powerful as they are for good, we do need to make sure that we draw those lines and be really clear about who's on the team and who, who is behaving as if they're not on the team, because it affects all of us, whether it starts in Wuhan or whether it starts in New Jersey or, or South San Francisco. So, you know, I've got to say it, it does feel like Mammoth is at the beginning of something truly significant here. And um, I'm very proud to be associated with, but also just proud of you for taking it on and for leading the way you're leading. I mean, seriously, it's it's been great to watch over the last three years. There's an energy flowing through this company. There's the technology and the many things it can do. And and like I said, it's a lot like seeing the birth of the microchip. There's certainly, uh, you can sometimes feel the energy around things and, and there's certainly a lot of energy around this. And I just want to thank you for being on and for doing what you're doing. And um, thanks for your advice to the founders. And uh, we wish you well. We know you're busy. And, uh, and good luck with getting us uh, the COVID diagnostic of our dreams in the next year. And then we look forward to seeing what you do after that. Thanks, Trevor. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm always happy to chat.